Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Common Bridge. We've got a great episode coming up today. It's about infrastructure, and we welcome back to The Common Bridge from Cornell University, Dr. Rick Geddes. He is a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management. He's the founding director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure. He's a member of the graduate fields of systems engineering, economics, and public affairs, and he's a visiting scholar with the American Enterprise Institute. We had the privilege of having Dr. Geddes with us before on the Common Bridge. It was podcast episode 91, which is season two, episode 24 from February 28th. Really got a grounding in infrastructure and contracting. Learned a lot about this. I'd invite you all to please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast channel, to the YouTube channel, YouTube TV, Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, and of course at richardhelpy.com. Today we welcome back to the Common Bridge, Dr. Rick Geddes. Rick, so happy that you've spent some time with us today. Thanks for the invitation, Rich. It's great to be back. Great. Well, there's a lot of noise flying around about infrastructure right now. I know people are accustomed to having the titling of bills be misleading. Have you had a chance to look at the current proposal from the Biden administration? So, Richard, I've gotten a general sense of it at a, at a pretty high level. Um, partly, uh, I think that's because the details of the plan have not yet been released. It's really a, a broad thought piece, I would say, at this at this point. But what we know, Rich, is that they're proposing a very large federal spend. I think it's $2.2 trillion, so $2.2,000 billion um, is, is a whole lot of um, federal money uh, to be spending. One, one of the big things, uh, Rich, in the policy community, of course, is that there's a whole lot of, of uh, programs and uh, issues rolled into one bill. So not only does it include a whole set of infrastructure sectors, so transportation is there, energy, water, broadband, um, and other things, it also seems to include a lot of what we would call uh, social program type spending, care for the elderly, you know, other, other types of, of care that's normally not considered uh, uh, physical civil infrastructure. I think if you add up the numbers, maybe it's around half is... Um, possibly in the bucket of civil infrastructure of some sort. Uh, so there, there's a whole lot um, in the plan as, as currently proposed, you know, which I think is, is sort of complicating uh, the discussion about it a little bit. Yeah, I, I know that I've read uh, a number of analyses that uh, say that there's $400 billion in there for Medicaid expansion. And, you know, that might be a good idea. I don't know why it's in this bill. $213 billion for housing, including increased federal control over housing, $100 billion to schools, and they can get that without reopening, $35 billion for climate reimbursement, $10 billion for a new program called the Civilian Climate Corps, and also, and I'm not sure how this fits into infrastructure, but quashes the right to work laws that are in force in numbers of states. Um, I don't know if it went as far as uh, 
putting card check in place, but clearly there's a piece of that legislation designed to attract the union leadership. I don't know if we know at this point, but of the things that most people would think would be infrastructure, just like you talked about roads, bridges, water mm-hmm. systems, broadband and the like, is there a lot of policy dispute? Does anybody really quarrel with the fact that we need to get after upgrading those things? I wouldn't say quarrel, uh, but, but I think there's a, a consensus that, at least in the people who study you know, infrastructure policy, that, that the, the plan as it's currently proposed takes sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to infrastructure sectors in the United States that are, that are really quite different. You know, they're quite different in terms of the nature of the physical infrastructure uh, that, that you're talking about, as well as the, the goods and services, you know, that they provide. But they're also very different in terms of the way they're funded, financed, um, how they need to be operated and maintained. And so if we just just take the piece of the plan that really does deal with some type of, of civil uh, infrastructure, Right. So I think one of the issues is that the one size fits all approach seems to be just a big federal spend on those infrastructure sectors over the next eight to nine years. Right. That and the, the, the notion seems to be that whatever the problem is in those sectors, having a lot of federal money pumped into it is, is going to, to help. Right. And so that immediately raises a whole bunch of questions like keeping in mind, everybody should keep in mind depending on the estimate, between 85 and 90% of all the civil infrastructure in the United States is owned by a state or local government. The federal government, you know, the infrastructure it owns is a lot of it is military. So it's army bases, Navy, Air Force, et cetera. You know, and that's normally not civil or civilian infrastructure. So immediately you have the issue of how does the plan propose that the federal government is going to interact with these state and local governments that actually own and thus are responsible for the operation and maintenance of what people normally think of as, as civil infrastructure. So if they're talking about a big spend, you know, in, in these different sectors, so water, there's a federal uh, loan facility called WIFIA, you know, that provides low-cost federal loans for water projects. There's a TIFIA that's one for transportation are they going to use federal money to buttress those loan programs? Or, Rich, are we talking about grants where the federal government is just going to make grants to the state and local infrastructure owners for certain projects, meaning you don't have to pay the money. It's a gr- pay it back. It's a grant. So then the question would be, well, what, what projects qualify? Uh, anything the state or local government wants to do that it calls infrastructure, is that going to be uh, eligible for a federal grant? It's, it's not clear. The other thing, though, Rich, is and something I've made a point on is, uh, first of all, the the needs of these sectors are very different. So normally when Congress thinks about doing a a transportation bill, that's reauthorizing spending out of the highway trust fund. So just, you know, to refresh, every time you buy a gallon of gasoline, (laughs) 18.3 cents goes to the federal government and and is put in a, a separate account in the federal highway trust fund. If it's diesel fuel, it's 24.4 cents goes to the federal government, but it accumulates. And every now and then, every five to six years, Congress reauthorizes spending out of the Federal Highway Trust Fund. And there's a whole set of programs that have evolved over time. That's, you know, roads, highways. It's called the Federal Aid Highway System, you know, that where Congress interacts with the state and local governments. 
So, so just transportation, right, which could include airports, by the way, aviation, is a pretty complicated thing for Congress to do. So, so then we have water. So that's dams, uh, levees, drinking water systems, wastewater treatment systems, what's called storm sewer separation, in, in the dredging of inland waterways. A lot of that deals with the Army Corps of Engineers, different group. You know, and that's another complicated thing. Different par- uh, co- committees in Congress deal with water. And then we have energy, right? As you indicated, mm-hmm. a big part of the bill is focused on renewable energy, charging stations, uh, green generating capacity, et cetera. That's another another world. Then there's also uh, communications. And one thing we've learned from the, the pandemic is the importance of having all communities access to broadband internet of, of, of certain quality, right, in terms of speed. And those those problems are both urban and rural, right? And one thing I've learned in studying this, Rich, is, is providing that it's not just one technology, right, to, to ensure that universal service uh, for broadband. There's a, a set of technologies that have to interact. It's very complicated to do that. So, so I think that's a whole nother, you know, set of issues. So yeah. the one size fits all approach, I think, could be a little problematic here. I recall when we uh, chatted back in February, and at that time we had dams in Michigan failing, and I learned that those were under private ownership. Uh-huh. The power grid in California has failed, and people are subject to rolling blackouts which means they go get generators, which are polluting and very loud. And since you and I have talked, the Texas power grid failed to the point where we had people for a week in 20 degree temperatures without power, without heat, without running water. I think we're a first world country, at least we still are. And now we've had the water issues down in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I also remember that you educated me and I'm sure our listeners about the contracting techniques. Mm -hmm. Instead of having a design and a build Mm -hmm. separate bids and then leave it up to the state to operate it, but there was a a term of art that you said it's basically it's design, build, operate, and hand it back. Is there any indication that this infrastructure bill is going to do that technique, which seems a lot more logical than Mm The, the design builds as a separate program. Yeah. So, Rich, uh, your question gets to, I think, a deeper concern about the plan as it's currently proposed. The answer is no. In other words, they're, they're, that's called a DBOM contract, by the way, design, build, operate, maintain. I've written more on that since our conversation. You know, there uh, there is some recognition that, that, that DBOMs, which are common in other countries, much more common, are a key tool for reducing deferred maintenance. Right. So so depending on the sector, one of the big problems we saw it in the California wildfires with the grid in in California, the PG&E, you know, own. But across sectors, so transportation, you know, potholes in roads, uh, rusting bridges and old tunnels, et cetera, is that the state and local owners have not maintained the infrastructure to the standard that it was designed you know, to be maintained. So that's deferred maintenance. So one of the reasons why you push for DBOM contracts is because it contractually obligates the state or local owner to make the expenditures the way the owner's manual tells you to do it to maintain the asset over its life cycle. And so the, the uh, concern with the, the plan as proposed, Rich, is that it doesn't seem to include these policy reforms or policy changes that would reduce deferred maintenance. 
and get us to a, a place of better operation, more efficient operation and maintenance over time. So this is something I've stressed, Rich, is that the problem the United States faces today is very different from what we faced in 1956 when President Eisenhower passed the bill to create the interstate highway system. At that time, we were designing and constructing and building out new vast networks of infrastructure. But now we've, we did that years or decades ago. Our problem is better operating it, more efficiently operating and taking care of it, meaning maintain it. So we would hope, Rich, that a bill, a federal initiative would really recognize the changed nature of the policy problem we face in infrastructure today and do everything it could to encourage and help state or local owners to do a better job of, of O&M, of operation right. and that, maintenance. And, and that D-bomb makes so much sense. And I could liken it to my experience in computer systems. We had someone that comes in and wants to sell you the you know, computer networking equipment. And they're going to say, right. here's the spec. They're not going to be responsible for, does the software run on that? And then if there are you know, new requirements for cybersecurity or or changes, well, that's you know not my responsibility either. But I would think that systems integrators would be lobbying like crazy for these DBOM projects mm -hmm. because they can be held accountable to service level agreements to say, you're going to deliver mm -hmm. us a dam, a bridge, a power supply that generates this, puts out this kind of carbon footprint, and is going to be good for so many years. It just makes way too much sense. I don't know if you have this insider expertise, but are the lobbyists of the traditional federal contractors more comfortable with the old model of, I can have a profitable design contract, or I can have a profitable build contract, and not have to worry about it. Rich, I, I think that's a great question. You know, I've written a bit about what we call traditional delivery, which as you and I discussed in our last interview is design bid build, where, you know, part really particular to the United States, from what I can tell, other countries just don't do this, but a, a municipality or, or a, a county, a, a state will bid out the design, pick the design that they like the best, then bid out the construction typically to the lowest cost provider mm -hmm. and then do the operation and maintenance themselves, right? Quite separate from the, and then it'll be, if it's a typical infrastructure project, it'll be financed with tax exempt municipal debt, which because it's tax advantage, they pay a lower interest rate. And, you know, states and cities, there are you know, thousands of these municipalities, you know, have done this for decades and they're, they're used to it. They're comfortable with it. They have a whole structure that supports that, but and it's done great in terms of delivering new infrastructure. But Rich, that what we call traditional delivery has done a poor job, as we're seeing today with almost a trillion dollars of deferred maintenance, depending on who's estimating it, right? But kind of agreement, almost a trillion dollars. You know, it's not served the country well in terms of taking care of what we have. The answer to your question, why aren't some of these companies going in and educating uh, the counties and the cities and the states more about D-bombs? There's other tools besides D-bombs, by the way, but um, I, it's a question. I, I don't really know. We're trying to do that with educational entities like my program at Cornell, uh, where we have you know seminars and things like that. But it, it's really hard to shift from that old, safe mindset. There's a very risk-averse and I understand it entirely, but there's a very risk averse mindset about adopting new 
uh, techniques. Uh, so that'd be my answer. That's really discouraging. And I know that we've just got a couple of minutes here. One of the things that we chatted about, and it was a mystery at that time, and I don't know if we know yet from the president's proposal, but what about mandates for domestic content, for having to source from the USA? Is there any indication we're going to get any better at that? So, Rich, that's another another great question. And one of the, there's two. Well, one of the things I'll say is, as I've studied this, I've been surprised at how many of the big companies that do this are not U.S. companies. So, so you know, uh, the the largest heavy civil construction company in the United States, I think, is Bechtel, but they're number tenth in the world, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So that means there's a lot of companies ahead of them you know, that, that do this. So, you know, the Germans do uh, the tunneling. So big boring machines that you need are, you know, not only Germans, but, but they do it. Japanese are very advanced, very big in this Koreans, you know, but also Spanish, French, British companies uh, come in. So if you're doing a big project, you know, these, these companies bid as a group. So it's a consortium that'll bid on something like the Tappan Zee Bridge or the Gateway Tunnel under the Hudson River, which is another big thing. You know, I just happen to know New York City projects, the Gothels Bridge uh, renovation, the LaGuardia uh, Terminal renovation, Terminal 1 at JFK. There are a few U.S. companies, but it's really dominated by international players. You could probably say that some of the subcontractors, you know, depending on the nature of the project uh, itself, could, could be American. But it's always been an interesting question to me, Rich, why the United States lags behind? And I could tell you toll road operators, um, a lot of Spanish companies are involved in toll road operation. The United States, you know, has has uh, there's some uh, players, but has not been, you know, a big leader in this. Um, So it's kind of it's kind of hard to say they have to be U.S. companies when you know, the leaders in these various elements, heavy civil construction, design, et cetera, are not U.S. companies. I believe a lot of the concrete comes from Canada. That's a great source of our concrete. I think so. I think I think that's right. Yeah. And Rick, the other criticism I've heard, and it's coming from the right, is that there's no spending at all for border security. And I think by any measure, we have a problem down there, and it's probably beyond infrastructure. I don't know if you consider that a miss or not, but today, are there any categories that were just miss? And I know that you've graciously agreed to come back and share some of your expertise around the Postal Service. Yeah, I'd love to. I know it's a fascinating topic. It is. I'd love to come back and talk about that, Rich. The point on border security, I think, gets to my earlier point. Most of us who really care and are passionate about U.S. infrastructure, some, you know, heavy civil networked infrastructure. That most people, if you were to ask them, how do you define infrastructure? This is, they would tell you roads, bridges, tunnels, you know, maybe water systems, energy systems, communication systems. I think we would like to see federal initiatives on this separated from other policy problems, whether it's immigration, whether it's care for the elderly, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. It tends to complicate it. And just from our discussion today, you can tell there's a lot of good things the federal government could do just in transportation, just in, in improving. Again, the problem is operation and maintenance. You know, there's there's a lot of renovation that has to be done because of years, if not decades, of deferred maintenance, right? But just getting that right is a heavy lift for Congress. And, and I think we would all like them to, to focus on those sectors you know, and obviously immigration is a super uh, controversial 
uh, topic right now that we're, we're afraid could distract from a really good bill just on transportation or a really good one just on broadband, right? So, so that is, I think, our hope. Um, but, you know, we don't know exactly how this discussion is going to evolve in Washington. I tell you, I long for the day when the people we elect to serve get together and say, what can we agree on? What can we get done? Yes. And that we actually have reporting on it. And that's, of course, what this program's about. Uh, Rick, as we wrap up here, anything that we should have covered today that perhaps we didn't or any closing comments? Yeah, so Rich, I do have, a, you know, obviously, and I could talk about this for the next hour. But, um, you know, one, one of the things I would say is that the, the problem, the policy problem that you face when you're designing and constructing new systems, whatever it is, right? And we've always, as one of the things that makes the country great is our desire for universal service. So we, we don't want any communities left out of basic public goods and services. We want them all to have electricity. We wanted them all to have telephones. We wanted them all to have paved roads. We wanted them all to have postal service for over post offices for over 200 years and on down the list of things that we think are, you know, basic goods and services. So, but the problem of providing and designing and constructing that new service, that new network is very different from what we face today, which is operating and maintaining what we already have. So what I think we need is more subtle, more smart, intelligent, if you will, federal policy where the federal government interacts with the state and local owners in, in, in a more thoughtful way, right, to, to squeeze the value, to optimize those systems and just get rid of the deferred maintenance, to properly maintain the stuff that we have. And we've been lucky, right, as a country. Most other people on earth have not had, you know, the the, the public services, the clean water, the wastewater treatment, the uh, reliable electric power, the mobility, the communications power, you know, and universal communications networks that we've had for, for decades, right? So now, in some sense, it's a good problem to have, but I think the federal policy needs to get away from this notion of just, you know, spending big to build out systems, because that's not the main problem we face today, Rich. So I would just you, leave with that thought. You, I, I love the thought, and, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that uh, those foundational goods and services, including reliable broadband and devices to get on it, um, are critical to our future because that's where the value add the economy is going to come from. That's where the innovation is going to come from. And that's where the right. opportunities for our citizens are going to come from. And we need to make right. sure it's available, whether someone's in a deep urban setting or, you know, far away from an urban setting and a more, you know, rural or mountainous area, uh, what have you. Right. Rick, we'd love to put some links up to some of your recent papers. I know they're very well received, that there's a lot of noise about infrastructure and We've gotten great comments about the depth of your understanding and your ability to present it to uh, mere civilians like me and, and <laughs> the listeners of the Common Bridge. Yeah, ha so, happy to do so, Rich. Well, thank you so much. And again, I just want to ask those that are listening, please subscribe to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, Richard Helpy's Common Bridge TV on YouTube. And of course, subscribe at richardhelpy.com. We've been talking today with Cornell professor, Dr. Rick Geddes, and a continuing series about infrastructure and how to solve that problem. This is Rich Helpy with our guest signing off on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.